Welcome to the first episode of the American Birding Podcast from the ABA. I'm Nate Swick from the ABA blog, and I'm really excited to introduce this new project from the American Birding Association podcast delivered to you regularly about birds and birding in the ABA area and beyond. At the ABA, we're fortunate to have so many friends and colleagues in the birding world, and just like you, we love talking about birds, so it's our intention to invite them here to talk about birding and let you listen in. You'll certainly hear from ABA staff as well about what's going on in the organization. And we want to involve the wider birding community in the conversation as much as we can. So if there's anything you want to hear about or anyone that you want to hear from, please let us know in the usual social media channels or via email. We're sort of in beta mode with this, for for lack of a better term. But we want this podcast to be as useful and entertaining as it can be. So please let us know what you want from a birding podcast produced by the American Birding Association. We'll go ahead and start with some birding news. The big news coming from the ABA is the vote to include Hawaii in the ABA area going forward. That decision was made by the membership of the organization and announced at the annual meeting in Delaware City in late October. We first want to thank all of the ABA members who cared enough about this issue to submit their proxy ballots. Four out of five of them supported this action of adding the 50th state to the ABA area. We appreciate that support. We also acknowledge that there are those who might be skeptical about the change. We hope that we can allay those concerns in the months ahead as we move forward. This podcast is going to play a role there. We'll have ABA staff, birders from Hawaii, and others on to talk about what's going on. We want to make this whole thing as transparent as possible, and we want to make sure that we're making an effort to recognize those concerns about the change, both from a birding and from a conservation standpoint. To that end, I wrote a post on the ABA blog last week that answers some of those questions. The link to that post will be in the info here. So please hit us up there or on Facebook or Twitter if there's anything that you'd like to see addressed. Stay tuned for that in upcoming episodes. And that's kind of a nice segue to my first guest, Laura Kammermeyer, who you probably know from our website, the Nature Travel Network. We talked about ecotourism. We talked about new destinations for birding. We talked about what birders look for when they're traveling, above and beyond the birds, of course. And all of this sort of relates to Hawaii in some way. You know, we want to encourage people to travel to Hawaii to appreciate the birds there. And we think adding Hawaii to the aviary plays a big role in that. I think you're going to enjoy that. But first, here's this week's Rare Bird Alert. This is your Rare Bird Alert for the first couple weeks of December, and because this is our very first RBA, we'll throw in some highlights from the last part of November, too. There are a number of noteworthy rarities in the ABA area that have persisted for more than a week, most notably the ABA's third Amazon Kingfisher in Laredo, Texas, second Common Scoter in Oregon, and the ABA's fourth Pine Bunting in Gamble in the Bering Sea, western Alaska. The bunting has even stuck through the worsening Arctic winter for the handful of intrepid birders who have traveled to see it. Pink-footed goose continues to prove that its ABA Code 4 is probably a bit high, as birds have been found this fall and early winter in Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. A common shell duck was found last week on the north shore of the St. Lawrence River in eastern Quebec. The species is not yet on the ABA checklist, but a couple notable sightings in Newfoundland and Massachusetts suggest that we're seeing a pattern of natural vacancy for the species. 2015 Newfoundland bird was accepted by the Provincial Records Committee and will probably see action by the ABA committee in the coming year. In recent weeks, at least five states have seen first records, a lesser goldfinch in Virginia being the most recent, but the week before saw a first common crane for Oklahoma, a first Anna's hummingbird for Nebraska, a first bohemian waxwing for Tennessee, and two firsts for Washington, a dusky-capped flycatcher and a blue grosbeak, both at Nia Bay and Clallam County. 
The District of Columbia records its first record of sandhill crane recently, which is maybe the most notable for the novelty of being the last jurisdiction, state, province, or territory in the ABA area to record the species for its list. And yes, that does include Hawaii. South Florida has been super hot lately, and in particular Miami-Dade County, which has seen no fewer than three individual western spindalis, two thick-billed vireos, and a Lasagras flycatcher in the last couple weeks. Other interesting trends we've seen in the last couple weeks include Couch's Kingbird in the southeast. Both Louisiana and Mississippi have hosted individuals this fall, the second record for the latter. Florida and Alabama both seem poised to find one next. Uh, Black-throated gray warbler has turned up a handful of times as well, with recent records for Massachusetts, Maryland, and Virginia, as well as one in Saskatchewan. Bullock's orioles have been found in both Maine and Michigan in the last two weeks. In the west, field sparrow has been seen both in British Columbia and Washington in the last couple weeks. South Carolina had a young snail kite, its second record, spend one day near Greenville. The bird was wearing bands that placed its origin at a private mitigation wetland in Indian River County, Florida. Uh, and those are some recent highlights, but for a complete roundup of the rarity situation across the ABA area, be sure to check the ABA blog at blog.aba.org every Friday for all the rarities in the ABA area, or at least those rarities that people are reporting to their local listservs. You can also find real-time updates on all the good birds being seen across the U.S. and Canada at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group, which you can find at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare. <laughs> So my guest today is Laura Kammermeyer. She's the creator and editor of the Nature Travel Network, which is an online guide to nature travel resources. Uh, Laura, thanks for joining me. Hi there, Nate. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about the Nature Travel Network. What was your goal in creating this uh, resource? Uh, what niche did you feel like needed to be filled? Yeah, well, I think that I often uh, do things like this because I, I deal in information. I think the world of nature travel is... There's so much information to know and to understand. And as a novice traveler back then, I felt that I didn't know much about these countries going in. And there's a lot of people who are expert bird watchers that know it and by default. But a lot of us just need help to kind of get an overview of what we're supposed to find and what we're supposed to know. It takes a lot of information to prepare for a trip. You might have to go through, you know, somewhere between eight and 20 websites to really get what you want. And what I wanted to do is create a portal, like a destination directory, so that you can go to the page for the country that you're going to visit and you have an online portal that gives you an overview and a map um, of what to expect. And then some uh, mammal lists, some bird lists, and just somebody who's been there before, just basically helping you along. And then links and articles from there that our, our authors have written. We've got a a network of about 70 different um, about 70 different guides around the world that have contributed so far and you know th they're experts in the field and so we want to borrow from their expertise and help them help you know help us be able to get get to these destinations so. yeah absolutely you know in the in the past uh, this stuff was out there but you know it was always kind of a mess to find you know you'd have to go to as you mentioned you know, dozens of different sites to get the right information. It wasn't always terribly intuitive. So it's certainly nice to have that sort of thing available. Right. And especially because birding travel is getting more popular now. So I think there's been a, a, a huge increase in the number of people who are uh, being courageous and going somewhere overseas rather than just to a, a, a birding festival, you know, in the, in the next state. So so there's a lot more, a lot more people who are not expert who are, who are taking the plunge. And so the, the site exists to help them. 
and certainly people that are interested in taking the plunge sort of on their own. You know, it seems to me that in the past, uh, a lot of this information was held by, you know, guides and sort of the big tour companies. And increasingly, there are more homegrown guides looking to make a name for themselves in a lot of these international destinations, which is really great to be, have an opportunity for them to get their name out. Yeah, I see that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so what role do you see as a, a nature travel writer playing in promoting these sort of destinations? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the key to anything is making it known. If you want to um, have people get to a place and know it, they just need to be introduced to it. So I think just making the formal introduction to a place and talking about the experience and being a trusted voice who does that is really what we're all about. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people knew me from my blogging before, before I decided to create Nature Travel Network. And so I had a certain voice. And what I do and what our writers do is kind of bring their voice here to say, hey, you know, this is a safe place. This is an interesting place. This has great birding. This is what you might expect. I think when you make something known to somebody, to a novice, then they're much more willing to take that plunge. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly more destinations than ever looking to um, you know, establish this sort of ecotourism industry and, and promote economic development through nature tourism in their own in their own countries. Um, uh, as these nations in the developing world seek to take advantage of these resources, uh, what do you think that a destination should be able to offer visiting birders at minimum? Right. So building the or having or building the infrastructure is huge. And really, do you have enough hotel rooms? That's a, that's a huge thing. You know, we'll talk about Cuba later. But one of the things that is challenging for Cuba right now is do they have enough space to, to, comp to accommodate the need? Um, so you need decent lodging and, and you need decent food. Um, but you also need well-trained guides. And I think there are some places who are just starting to get into the birding thing, um, mm -hmm. birding travel promotion that um, are kind of, their guides are what we call world-class yet. And so I think that every destination has to work on the quality of their guides and try to understand and then meet the expectations of Western travelers. Yeah. And, so you know, <laughs> Western travelers can be quite picky. You can be a lot more picky when you're a birder. You know, there's, there's some people that are pretty inflexible about what they want and what they demand from their guides. And not necessarily that I believe that um, those kind of travelers should be, <laughs> you know, accommodated every time. You really need to be flexible when you travel. This is a big, wide world. But mm -hmm. um, you do have to do some basic things um, in terms of meeting their expectations for information, for example. You know, birders need information. We need to know some expectations about where we're going and where we're going to go next. And if plans change, then we need some commun communication back and forth about uh, what is the next plan. So we can be flexible and we can be accommodating as long as we have information. I've noticed that's a big difference. And so that makes it right. hard for travelers in some areas to, to adapt. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. certainly seen the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the wonderful things about this um, uh using sort of developing these economic opportunities for these nations is that it also kind of dovetails in a lot of conservation, um, mm -hmm. a lot of conservation interests. Um, do you see international travel as a tool for conservation and how can travel writers bring these conservation stories to a wider audience? That's a great question. And absolutely. I mean, you know, I could, I could give you at least three, three examples off the top of my head because it seems this is, this is really what's happening right now. Um, let's go back. The, the, um, the American Bird Conservancy has for several years had a conservation birding program. And what, they're, what they've done is they've identified, <clears throat> they've identified um, 
species at risk in certain areas. And they've, they've working with partners on the ground who have reserves and have lodging. And they've identified various lodges across the world uh, in the Americas where, um, where they're kind of promoting conservation birding. So a portion of the proceeds from that travel will go to support the preserve management or the habitat management. Somehow they're supporting the conservation that's going on the ground. So I've seen that with American Bird Conservancy. I've seen that with one of its partners, um, the um, Amazon Conservation Association. Uh, I've worked with them, and what they have is three three lodges uh, in Peru. They they range from the high Andes and the cloud forests all the way down to like the watery watery oasis at at the foothills. Um, and what they they do they do habitat conservation and cultural preservation and with these lodges what they're trying to do well actually they were biological stations first let me say that they were biological stations first and then um, doing all sorts of research to preserve the amazon and they're buffering the mano biosphere preserve and then they decided hey why don't we do something more with this so they saw the idea that conservation travel can help them with their mission and so in the past couple of years what they're doing is promoting um, building that and promoting the structures that are there because they're beautiful places where you can see some amazing birds the honduras birding for conservation tour is taking place aba president jeff gordon is one of the celebrity guides and so that model is really interesting i don't know that that's been done before i i don't think it has so five celebrity birders were invited to develop teams of birders, and these birders follow their celebrity leader around Honduras, get as many birds as they can, and then the winner will then make a decision on a big pot of money. I think it's about $20,000 will go to the favored conservation project on the ground in Honduras. You know, we talked about nations that are sort of um, taking, trying to take advantage of these uh, ecotourism destinations. Honduras is a great example of it. You know, they are, were not, they're not one of the places that I would consider to be, you know, one of the, when I started birding, the places where people went, which were, you know, Costa Rica primarily, uh, Trinidad, Ecuador. Um, but it's definitely one of those up and coming nations that seems to be doing everything right to promote its its own natural resources in a way that uh, is attractive to birders, not just because of the the birds that you can see there, which are phenomenal, but uh, the conservation opportunities. Yeah. And it's almost mainstream now, Honduras. They've done a great job. Um, you know, I, 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 we could talk about James Adams, who's done a wonderful job trying to make that bridge between the United States and between Honduras. Um, so I think, and sometimes it's a person, um, it's about the training that the guides get. And uh, in particular, it's it's the lodge there. Um, Pico Benito Lodge is, is mm -hmm. just doing good work. They have the capacity to do more than just, you know, beg for travelers. I think they're, they're participating in, in uh, this awareness and this promotion of Honduras in general. So it's good to see. Yeah. And, and while I don't think that birders are going to these places, particularly with the conservation aspect in mind, I think it's one of those things that's almost like it's, it's icing on the cake. You know, you go to this place for its wonderful birding opportunities. And if you are able to see the sort of conservation uh, actions that are being that are taking place there, um, you certainly feel better about about putting your money there for sure. Right, right. And I know some companies um, that that if you buy a tour from them, they'll take a hundred or 200 or some portion of your fee. And this is just their business model. Their business model is to just shunt one to $200 off to a certain conservation 
uh, project or organization. So, um, and oftentimes the ones that are, that's a great key to sustainable travel. You know, there's, there's a lot of facets to sustainable travel, but it's always about keeping your dollars in the location that you're visiting. And so the company that I have in mind actually does this. And so what they do is they find somebody on the ground to give that money to. And so I think that, you know, Americans are considered affluent. I know we don't feel that rich, but, you know, we have more money than a lot of other people in the world. Compared to the rest of the Americas, yeah. Yeah. So it's still hard to spend money and justify a trip when it's only about you, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of Mm -hmm. us. But we have an altruistic streak that's huge. And so we're more willing to spend that money if we know that we're going to be supporting something that's bigger than us. So this is an interesting opportunity to segue into Cuba, uh, you know, with the economic restrictions coming down, with the embargo uh, dropping little by little. Uh, it, it, Cuba is increasingly an attractive destination for American birders. Um, opportunities for ecotourism there are, are you know, increasing with every year. It seems like a lot of birders are going there. Um, you have some experience traveling there earlier this year. Um, what about your experience touring that country as a birder suggests that they are ready to to market to birders um, in the United States and Canada? Mm-hmm. Well, they certainly have some excellent leaders on the ground. You know, we toured with Arturo Cucano, who was fantastic. He's written somewhere around 77 peer-reviewed scientific articles about birds. He wrote the Birds of Cuba book. And there's a few other guides like him that are that are really ready and, and are doing these tours all the time around the clock now around the calendar so they have good guiding they probably need more support in the guiding uh, to accommodate the demand um arturo himself is working with his son now so he's taught his son everything he knows and so uh so they're they're a team and they're partners um I think that there's some challenges that they need to uh to address and of course lodging is one they're going to have to um improve the number of lodges if they're going to accommodate groups. Um, let me just, just break for a second here. There is some, there's another way to travel in Cuba. If you're, do, if you're going it alone, you really want to consider something that's called a casa particular. And what that is, is basically like a bed and breakfast, although you might get her out of it too. And these are small individual homes where, although private enterprise is not allowed in Cuba, for some reason, Casa Particulars, people are allowed to sell rooms out of their houses. And some of these are absolutely wonderful. And to meet the Cuban people is is so special. Uh, we had one of the best nights of our lives when we went to dinner at a, at a Casa Particular. We spent all night dancing. They brought in their special friends who played traditional music for us for about four hours. It was just an, an amazing night. And it really um, made us feel so connected. To, you know, and, and it was just a very special moment. Um, a lot of the organized tours will go on, uh, what do you call them? Well, all-inclusive resorts. And uh, I kind of put resorts in quotes because they're not, a lot of them really kind of aren't up to typical standards. Does that matter? I know that doesn't matter to a lot of people and it doesn't really matter a lot to me either. Um, yeah. But in terms of the, the range of expectations that Western travelers have. Right. It seems as though birders are generally more forgiving of those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, uh, more non-nature oriented travelers, it's hard to say. Yeah. See, in Cuba, a lot of the hotels, if not all of them, are owned by the government. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, the getting the 
getting permission to stay in the hotels and while the government sort of does this shell game of who's going to stay where, it has to happen behind the scenes. So there's a lot of work in, in, in securing lodging in advance. And sometimes the government has the authority to kind of, if some other group that's better than you, <laughs> um, or, I, you know, we did see one person on our tour, one couple on our tour that was booted out because the reservation, the, I don't know, the lodge was full. They got in late and the lodge was full and they had to go somewhere down the road to a Casa Particular. It actually worked out wonderfully for them. I just felt bad because they got in around 10 p.m. after a 40-hour trip. And um, so things were <laughs> really, things were just, they were stressed by that. As you're saying, flexibility is an advantage. Yes, <laughs> we're having flexibility. Flexibility. Um, so, so I think there's going to be more there, but it's also sad, um, you know, just to say, oh, well, we need more hotels because you know what's going to have to happen for that. Right. Well, I was going to ask, you know, are there any potential negative consequences to encouraging ecotourism in these, these sensitive regions? Yeah. And yeah. that would obviously be one. Absolutely. Habitat destruction from, you know, putting up things to, to, to support foreign birders. So it's, so I don't know what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the development, but we really need as, as travelers with the means and the education to say, Hey, sustainable travel matters to us. We care how you do things. And so if you're gonna, you know, um, if you're going to destroy a hundred acres on the keys because you think that we need, you know, luxury to, 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 you know, come and enjoy your beautiful country, who's, which is so authentic, then, you know, then we don't, we don't want, we don't support that. We want to see somebody who, you know, if we see some sort of development, we want it to be in concert with the authenticity of your culture, but also mm -hmm. we want to see it in, um, with respect to the wildlife and the beautiful nature and scenic values that it already has. Yeah. Um, so are you going to be writing about Cuba on the Nature Travel Network? Yeah, we've got a few things up already. We've got um, we've got a 10 things you should know about traveling to Cuba. And that was a guest post by Jean Hornicke of JB Journey. So, so that goes through some of the logistical things about tipping and the legal travel, the paperwork. Um, I also interviewed Arturo, which gives us a lot of good information. You can go there for things like when is the best time to visit, what are Cuba's 28 endemic species, which ones are you most likely to see, and what are the major biodiversity areas. So you'll get some really good birding background. From yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to have a link to that on the uh, when we publish this podcast. Uh, so Thanks, Laura, for joining me. Um, once again, Laura Kammermeyer is the creator and editor of Nature Travel Network. You can find that at naturetravelnetwork.com. Uh, thanks, Laura. All right. Thank you so much, Nate. Take care. For today's commentary, I recently had the opportunity to travel in Colombia as a guest of ProColombia, the government agency in charge of promoting international tourism. The trip was unfortunately a short one based around an official announcement of Colombia's national birdwatching strategy. Yeah, you heard that right. Colombia has a national birdwatching strategy. And it's not a policy aimed at getting more Colombians interested in birding, though that would certainly be a nice side effect, but one that aims to attract international travelers, specifically birdwatchers, to Colombia for ecotourism. Putting aside for now the fact that Colombia has a national birdwatching strategy and how novel that is, it makes a lot of sense for Colombia to market itself this way. 
Birders in the United States and Canada, particularly those who chose to join the American Birding Association, can be pretty adventurous travelers. And Colombia has a lot of birds, nearly 1,900 species, the most species of any nation in the world. And that's a figure that Colombians are justifiably proud of, and one that is likely to grow with splits and new discoveries in the future. A tangent, the reason why Colombia is so rich has to do with the fact that the Andes Mountains split into three distinct ranges once they enter the nation, and each range offers unique species, not just birds, but insects and plants as well. It's a really cool example of speciation on a continent and the sort of thing that you usually only see on islands. So there are a lot of elevations to explore and different suites of birds at every altitude, which makes for amazing biodiversity. And more, in addition to the variety of species, I was struck by how easy some of them were to see. We had classical neotropical groups like Katingas, Antpittas, Tanagers, and Hummingbirds. Uh, they were all really plentiful. Birds like Calcaguan, which were thought to be extinct in the not-too-distant past, can be found with not a lot of difficulty. And as the nation continues to open up and put decades of drug trafficking and internal warfare and bad publicity well behind it, more of these stories are likely. There are still a small handful of places that birders and even Colombians can't access, but these are declining every year, and there's clearly a sense of excitement among Colombians, particularly those that are interested in birds, that they're able to discover more of their own country at the same time as the tourists are. So Colombia offers spectacular birdwatching, which is no surprise to anyone, but what I was most excited about was this national birdwatching strategy I mentioned before. Not only by how uh, novel it was, but by how invested the government was at even the highest levels. The Ministry of Tourism took a look at what Colombia could offer international tourists. And high on that list, alongside things like cultural interests and beaches and scenic mountains and the sorts of things that lots of nations try to sell to the world, was birds. The government of Colombia has prioritized birds, and that's extraordinary. And as we know, prioritizing birds means prioritizing a number of other things. First and foremost among them is conservation. In order to continue to have birds in nature to sell, you need to protect what birds in nature you have. And this is a route that places like Costa Rica have famously traveled, and Colombia looks to build on those successes. They already have an impressive system of national parks and protected lands. The infrastructure needed to get birders and international tourists to those places is still lacking in some areas, but there are plans to fix that. There are also plans to build a community of bird guides in the nation, well-versed in biodiversity and fluent in English, importantly enough. Uh, there's also a push to encourage local entrepreneurs in the form of eco-lodges for traveling birders, which also has the added benefit of encouraging the protection of private land in addition to public land. So right now, there, are, there certainly are great guides and great lodges, but there are not enough of them. And they want the sustainable economic development opportunities that protect the nation's biodiversity. And the time scale for this is ambitious, but it's also really exciting. I was speaking to our guide, a young guy named Johanny Gaviria, who is really into nature and birds and whose English is impeccable about this. And there was a real sense of enthusiasm about living in a nation at a time when you feel like you can get in on the ground floor. He works as a nature specialist at a more general tour company, but his ultimate goal is to do something on his own. And that's sort of how it starts, right? A person makes it as a bird guide, young people see them making it, and see this as a, as a path for themselves, and before long, you have a number of excellent guides all across the country, and you have a number of people established in an industry that promotes conservation. Uh, can Columbia get there as quickly as they want to? I don't know, but money has a way of shortening that time frame, and if the government is interested in promoting this, I don't see why not. And perhaps the coolest thing about all this, and why we in the ABA and in the North American birding community should care about what's going on in Colombia, is that we birders in North America benefit as well. The forests there, when we're, where we visited, were crawling with Blackburnian warblers, along with mourning black and white and Canada warblers. We saw Swainson's thrushes and summer and scarlet tanagers. 
We even had an osprey fly over while we were sitting at about 12,000 feet on the side of a volcano. And we know that many of them spend their winters in the Amazon basin, so that was a really neat thing to see. The birds we think of as ours don't really care much about national borders, and a true hemispheric conservation ethos that considers the needs of birds on both ends of their year is what is needed to be sure that we still have these things going forward. What happens in Colombia impacts us more than we realize, and the movement among Latin American countries to expand ecotourism opportunities and invest in conservation affects us even if we never get to travel there. And if those conservation initiatives are tied to opportunities for people in Colombia and elsewhere to make a living, to support their families in a way that appreciates that incredible biodiversity, then all the better. Speaking for myself, I feel better knowing that the birds that pass through my home in spring and fall have a place to go in the winter that there are people down there that are thinking about them. And when I see a Blackburnian warbler again next May, I'll think about the friends I made in Columbia and think about the great work they're doing there for birds and birds. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. President of the ABA and executive producer of the American Birding Podcast is Jeff Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry. His band, The Hangabouts, also wrote and performed our theme music. You can find the American Birding Association at www.aba.org. And also on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders and on Twitter at ABA. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.